Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. And the other thing was the email that came into them, and, and this is the phrase, jogged my memory to make me go, oh, have a look here. Do you want to explain what was happening in that, that example? Uh, yeah, you know, you're just crazy is the, the explanation. Uh, I've been waiting a long time to get to this, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. But when you pick up that memory or you retrieve that memory, it's then context-dependent, state-dependent, and sort of mood-dependent. Our memories are not computers. It's not that we type in a search term and then it goes through and it finds exactly where it is. Bring it. A lot of times our memories are path-dependent, and so it depends on where we start. Hey, listener, you've joined the mini-series on memory, and we're at number three, the third podcast that we've done. Therefore, I would really suggest that you go back and you listen to show one and show two. We'll put a link in the show notes for, for both of these. Uh, the reason I say that is we're taking a really deep dive into memory because I think memory is such an important part of customer experience, and we we totally underestimate it. And the subject for me is absolutely fascinating. And what we've done over the last two shows is we've talked a bit about, well, why are memories so important? We've talked about how memories are structured like fishing nets. And that's Ryan's way of explaining things, which I think is one of the biggest things I've learned from Ryan over the years. We've talked about the different types of memories, and there's more than just one type of memory. And in this show, we're going to talk about how memories, you know, how can you help store memories, okay? And we're going to talk about the retrieval of memories, and we're also going to talk about forgetting, because that's an important part. Why do we forget things? Obviously, we're putting this in the whole context of customer experience, and then finally, we're going to talk a bit about the so what, which is, okay, so what does all this lot mean? What should you be doing? But if you think about it, memories define us. We are our memories, okay? Memories are our link to our past, but they affect our actions of, of today. Ryan, have I missed anything, mate? Can you remember um, if I've m missed anything? Uh, no, that was a, a great summary. When we talk about memory, there's kind of two core processes that matter getting stuff into memory and getting stuff out of memory and so i think that this is that's going to be the theme of this third episode in our mini series on memory right we've talked about all the different types of memories that are that are out there and i think that's very useful but how do we get stuff into there and then how do we get stuff out of there that's kind of like the the bow that we put on this discussion absolutely Do you want to attack this from the theory perspective to start off with and look at how we, how can we help store memories? Sure. A lot of the advice for storing memories and, and our understanding of storing memories 
it's about understanding the limitations of our memory system. So when things don't get stored in memory, a lot of times it's because we're not we're not working with the system as it was designed, which are kind of expecting too much out of it. So one of the the ideas in storage is this idea that we've already talked about, which is that memories exist in network structures. And so if you want something to be remembered, it helps very much to tie it to some other ideas that are already in there. One of these, and and we're going to talk about several different mnemonic devices, which is just a mnemonic is just a, a way of remembering things. It's kind of a heuristic system for remembering things easier. And one set of mnemonics has to do with linking ideas together to other ideas. So have you ever heard of a memory palace? Memory palace, no. There was an episode of, of the BBC Sherlock Holmes series where they explored the memory palace. This was how Sherlock Holmes remembered things very easily. There's a TED talk that was very popular um, talking about memory palaces. Right. Basically, the idea is that we can remember things um, or one of the techniques for remembering things is by setting a series of things that we want to remember. So it might be facts, for example, into a context where they now are related to each other. So you might imagine walking through a house where in the first room is the first fact that you want to remember. And so now you're going to kind of tie that in together into now walking into the second room, which is the second fact you're going to remember. And so by, by creating the story around these facts where you're kind of physically moving through a space that helps tie these together. You're essentially creating a a network or you're creating several knots in a fishing net so that now these ideas are going to be linked together and you will remember them better. So that's, that's the first bit of advice is, can you put a memory, something that you want to remember into a network structure, either create one or put it into a network structure that already exists in your memory. And things like images and sounds and smells are all really important in, in that context, aren't they? That's right. So if we want to think about another way that things get remembered, multi-sensory memories, now we've got more inputs that are that are being put in there. So if we've got something coming at us from multiple different ways, that's kind of similar to the idea that we're repeating it over and over. We're just repeating it at the same time in different ways. So if we're experiencing something and there's a strong smell associated with that, we can make this pleasant. Say, you know, it's somebody that you're meeting and they have a, a, a nice perfume or a nice cologne that they wear. Now that sensory memory is going to be tied up in this network structure and this, these nodes with the other things, their name and, and how they interact with you and whatever emotional experience you have. And so those are, are going to be tied up together and you will remember that more easily. I know I'm going to jump ahead here, but as you were talking, it was making me think that there was a guy that uh, used to run training for us back in the day. Uh, and this was when I was in corporate life. He developed the palace idea. So I think a lot of people will know that one of the ways that you can remember people's names mm-hmm. is by associating it with a picture or an image, Yes, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. He was extremely good at that. So when somebody, we used to run these uh, training sessions, 24 people in, in each training session, they would come in and, you know, he would go around and say hello, hello to everybody. You could ask him at the five minutes later to, to replay all the names and he would know them and he would know them for, for the whole of that week. Yeah. So there are two areas that are interesting as we talk about this whole area of how memories are stored, etc. One was 
and this is how you retrieve that memory through those um, mm-hmm. pictures. One is interference. So the problem is that I guess to a certain extent, you're going to run out of pictures if you're doing a training course every day and you're trying to remember 24 names. By the time you've got to a certain picture, there's got to be John has got to be there more than once. And therefore, whether you've allocated them the, the same picture or whatever. So interference, by the way, is where you're trying to remember something, but it's being interfered with another memory of a similar situation or a similar product or service let me give you an example of that uh, actually uh, so i've recently i wanted to buy a new guitar amp okay for my my electric guitar i thought to myself okay I, i'm gonna buy a new amp and i thought where did i buy the last one from and i thought i bought it from fender so i went on to the fender website to to find out some technical details and i went onto the Fender website. And I looked in the orders and um, it wasn't there. And I thought, oh, that's strange. I thought I'd bought it from Fender. And then I got an email through from another music company that I use. And I thought, hold on, did I buy it from them instead? And I went onto their website and lo and behold, I bought it from them. So the point I'm trying to make, and there's probably two or three examples in this actually in there, mate, is the interference was, I wanted to remember something, but I had actually gone to the wrong place. Yeah, I went to Fender as opposed to this place called Anderton's that I, I use. Yeah, And the other thing was the email that came into them, and, and this is the phrase, jogged my memory to make me go, oh, have a look here. Do you want to explain what was happening in that, that example? Uh, yeah, you know, you're just crazy is the, the explanation. Uh, I've been waiting a long time to get to this, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. There are several things that were going on there. So part of the reason that you went to Fender is because that's probably the biggest node in your memory associated with guitars. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if you say, oh, I, I need to buy something related to my guitar, where should I go for that, or where did I go last time? You know, you started with guitar, and then you traced down the line to try to find remember a retailer that would sell you something yeah you've probably bought from fender before and so this that was the natural conclusion that you came to so again this is this is the idea that our me- our memories are not computers it's not that we type in a search term and then it goes through and it finds exactly what it is and bring it a lot of times our memories are path dependent. And so it depends on where we start. And so if you start with a certain, right, this is getting into the retrieval side, if you start with a certain node and then you follow the line down, you may end up with a different quote unquote memory because a different answer to your question than if you started with a different node and, and walk that down. When the email came in and reminded you of this other retailer, now you were kind of starting in a different place to retrieve that memory. And so you said, oh, well, well maybe, maybe it was this one instead. This Anderton's probably has a, a kind of a smaller or a weaker set of nodes than Fender does because Fender's got this amazing brand that's been around for forever. And so. Yes, yes. No, no, that's a good example. Also, you're crazy, though. I don't, I don't want to get past Thank that. You. Yeah. No, I, I remember that, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> So mnemonics are things like, uh, I was thinking about this earlier, and this is you know how we help to store memories. Mnemonics are things like, I was thinking of a business contact, the mnemonic of SMART. Yes. Specific, measurable, realistic, time-bound, or SWOT, 
strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Those are the types of things that, that, that help you remember things, aren't they? Yeah. So if we can reduce a complex set of ideas into a, an easy to remember acronym, then it becomes easier for us to remember because we're kind of compressing that into a smaller idea, right? And then once we've got that idea, now it's connected to these other ideas, right? So our daughter is in algebra two or, or a trigonometry. And so she's learning about these trigonomic functions. And I don't remember what sine and cosine and tangent mean, but I remember SIKATOA, which is this acronym that I learned in middle school for what sine does. Sine is opposite over hypotenuse. Cosine is, I don't want to break down the whole thing for you, but you get the idea. It's the same idea, right? We're, we're, we've got this, this larger set of information, which is difficult to remember. So instead we create a single node, which is this acronym. And then that is now attached to these other ideas and it becomes easier for us to remember overall. And involved in there, I guess, is the concept of chunking, isn't it? Yes. So chunking is, you know, putting things together. For instance, they say um, that when you give your phone number out, you shouldn't give out the, the whole number. You should break it into two or three digits, 9076, That's whatever right. it may be, you know, because two digits at a time is easier to remember. Have you heard of what three words? I have not. That sounds like a British uh, it's not quiz actually. show. Uh, no, it is a way of uh, pinpointing where you are in the world. I, I, I'm, I'm not walking away from this. That also sounds like a British game show. Are you sure that it's not? <laughs> or maybe not yet. No, so what, what three words are, basically there are three words that are chosen at random to be able to define the, your location. So they've broken the world up into, I want to say, one or two yard plots. And you can download this app and it will tell you the three words that describe where you are. So red, tree, owl, yeah? And if you say those three words, then they will be able to pinpoint exactly where you are rather than have to remember a coordinate or whatever else it may be. You can just turn around and say red tree owl and you'll be able to pinpoint exactly where you are in the world. So it's, it's a fascinating app and there's loads of different applications for it. Wow. I've heard similar advice for developing passwords we tend to force ourselves to use like really convoluted, you know, number of character strings and so on. And I've heard that a better approach might be to just choose four words that are meaningful to you and string those together. And now you've got a really long password that would be very difficult for a computer to crack, but it might be easier for you to remember in that way. Yes. It's techniques like that to simplify things, which is why I, I had a problem with my fridge. And I was trying to look, I think it was to replace the filter in the fridge. And I thought, I need to know what the model number is. And I looked at this model number. It's a Samsung fridge. The model number is about 20 digits long. Yeah. And you think to yourself, for goodness sake, is there not a better way of, of articulating <laughs> what the model number is? And that's just an example about how organizations, again, get things wrong. 
But but let maybe let's talk a bit more about how we retrieve memories. So we know that memories are stored. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about retrieval because you you told me before the show of a fascinating Zarnik effect, was it? Uh, Zagarnik. Zagarnik. So this is named after the psychologist who kind of identified this and who who documented it many times. And that the Zygarnik effect is essentially the idea that our goals can influence our memory. So uh, the basic idea is that if you have a a goal that is active, then you are going to be more likely to remember things associated with that goal. But as soon as that goal is satisfied and closed out, then you essentially free up that memory to work on something else. And so you'll let that stuff go. So the classic example of this is students who cram for an exam and study real hard for it. And then they ace the exam. And then if you were to give them the same exam a week later, they would fail it because they they've now don't remember any of the things that they studied. They had this goal of passing the exam. Once the goal is satisfied, then then that stuff is gone from memory. And the, the anecdote that is behind the Zygarnik effect uh, apparently, this this group of psychologists, including Zygarnik, were eating at a, a restaurant, and the the waiter was extremely good at remembering orders. So he didn't take any notes; he just like went down the table and and got what everybody wanted, and he delivered it with with no mistakes. And they were very impressed by this. These were memory psychologists; they were very impressed by this. And so they they did a, a test. They they then invited him back to the table after the food was ordered, and they covered all of their plates with napkins. And they asked him, can you remember like which food went where? And shockingly to himself, he could not. And again, this is that effect in action. When, when he had this active goal of getting the food to the table, he could remember it. But as soon as the food was delivered, that goal was closed and his mind was kind of moving on to somewhere else. And so in terms of retrieval, goals matter as well. Yeah. So the interesting thing, though, Ryan, isn't it, is that that memories, when we retrieve them, yeah. So the way I've always thought of a memory is, you know, it's like saving a word document or a mm-hmm. PowerPoint or whatever it may be. But when you pick up that memory or you retrieve that memory, it's then context dependent, state dependent, and sort of mood dependent, isn't it? So what I mean by that is, uh, and let me again give you uh, an an example. We were having some decorating done. We bought a new suite for the the living room. They were meant to deliver on a day. They took away the old suite. They were meant to deliver the suite. They didn't deliver the suite. Uh, So now we're sitting on, we're sitting on deck chairs in the living room. Yeah, it's an exaggeration, but um, you get the idea. The interesting bit now is that the context is I don't have anywhere to sit. And my mood is actually I'm really quite annoyed with them now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part as well is as the experience progresses, and we talked in the last podcast about episodic memory, i.e. memories that come through the experience that you have, it's being reinforced as a bad memory because of the frequency that I am going in, uh, I'm, I'm having these conversations. And, and therefore, our states and emotions, as we retrieve these, go down your, your fishing net or these breadcrumbs, yeah, are being reinforced in the number of times I'm having to think about it. 
And in fact, every time I go into the to the lounge and I sit on a chair that's uncomfortable now, it gets rein, reinforced that I haven't got the suite that I ordered. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Again, when we think about what you know is more likely to be remembered, repetition is part of it. Emotion is part of it. So it turns out emotions are a really key part of our memory system. And so things that are are really dry and unemotional tend to not get remembered well or for very long, whereas uh, things that are very emotionally charged do tend to get remembered. So yeah, all of that makes sense. You and I were talking about, so what should we talk about on the podcast? You talked to me a bit about the primacy regency effect. Recency, yes. Recency, sorry. One of the things that gets remembered essentially what goes in first and what comes out last. So accountants will talk about first in, last out accounting or first in, first out accounting. Our memories kind of work in a similar way where the first thing that goes into there within a category or within a a setting tends to get remembered. That's the primacy effect, what goes in first. Also what goes in last tends to get remembered. So the way that this is often tested or explored, suppose that I were to give you a list of cities. So you just sit there and I read off a list of cities to you. It turns out that the first city that I name and the last city that I name are going to be more likely to be remembered than the cities in the middle. So that's the primacy recency effect. So that's an interesting thought from um, a survey perspective, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In terms of the numbers of options you're given, and tell me if I'm talking rubbish here, but the thing that's at the top of the list and the things that's at the bottom of the list. So here are, did you think it was the experience was this, 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 and this? Yep. You can alter the response by putting, by changing the order of the list. That's not rubbish at all. I I think that is absolutely correct. Yeah. Now it'll depend on the size of the list. Sure. It's a very short list and very easy to remember, then we should expect the effect to be smaller. But I've, I've done some of these research surveys when somebody calls to my house uh, and sometimes those lists are not short at all. So yeah, we should very much expect a primacy, recency effect bias to be in effect in those situations. So let's talk a bit about forgetting. Uh, we already did, Colin. Do you not remember? i <laughs> 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 just kidding. I was just about to say the listener may want to forget the show ever existed. But um, there you go. Well, too bad. It is too emotionally charged. I'm sure that we've (laughs) made them angry at some point. It's inbuilt in their memories now. Uh Yeah. Training your frontline team on how to create memories in your customers by evoking their emotions. Beyond Philosophy's unique and proven training methodology, Memory Maker Training. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. One of the interesting things for me, and again, we talked about this in the first show, didn't we, about the difference between short-term memory yeah, or working memory. So you may remember a password if you're signing on to a, for a security app or something like that, and it sends you a password, you have to remember that password, but try remembering that password the next day and you won't be able to remember it. And long-term memories. But what about this whole area of, of storage decay? How does that happen? Because again, you hear people say, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue, yeah. you know? but I, I can't remember it. We've all done that favorite thing, haven't we, of going, 
I've gone upstairs to get something. Yes. <laughs> and you get get upstairs and you go, I can't remember why, I'm, why yeah. am I up here? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I did that yesterday um, and it was, it's not pleasant. Storage decay gets back to some of the biology of memory. So we think, we think about memory in terms of our minds as opposed to in terms of our brains. It can feel almost kind of magical where this information is stored in a certain way and there's these networks and notes. All of those are abstract representation of the biology of what's actually going on. My understanding and we're now reaching kind of the limits of my expertise on memory. But my understanding is that these, that memories are stored in terms of, of chemical traces that are left in the neurons. And so as you remember things more often, as you repeat them, we're kind of leaving deeper chemical traces or overlaying those chemical traces. And that leads to a stronger memory. Well, if it's information that we haven't engaged with in a long time, those chemical traces decay over time. And so they become weaker and they become more difficult to access uh, And as we go back to them. And so that that is this memory decay idea that if we're not using something, it tends to, to go away. An interesting parallel phenomenon that's been noted is that there's something called the Google effect, which is that the idea that we use our memory strategically so that we don't always necessarily remember stuff we don't have to. So for example, we don't remember facts as well as we used to as a society. We just, we all don't do this because we now have computers and smartphones accessible to us so often that we now instead remember where to find the information as opposed to the information itself. And if you go back to the, obviously the origins of history, the word history, his story, people used to sit around the, the fire at night telling stories that would be just repetitive, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the other one that made me think in this whole area of storage decay is the amount of people that go on training courses and then you see that they, you know, they don't implement what they learn and then you ask them in three months' time what they learn or whatever else or are they doing it and they're not. It's all of those areas as well. But the, the other area that's fascinating, and I, and I know that you said that you saw Elizabeth Loftus talk, which is this whole area of misinformation and, and what you believe that you heard or saw is actually incorrect. Uh, yeah. So Elizabeth Loftus is one of the, the foremost experts in the world on misremembering things uh, and kind of thinking that something happened, but it didn't really. And, and you remember she's testified in a number of criminal cases where there was eyewitness testimony and she she's talked about some of the, the ways that, that our memories can go wrong sometimes in, in kind of horrific ways when, when we're talking about criminal justice. I'll put a link into the show notes, but one of the, the ones that she explained, which I thought was, was fascinating, was they did a test with, played a video to this um, two groups of a car in an accident. So same video to both groups. Yeah, same video to both groups. I hope I'm not stealing your thunder. No, no, not at all. I just, I wanted to emphasize like these groups should have had exactly the same memory because they had exactly the same experience. They both watched exactly the same video Absolutely. Um, of this. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. So group one, she asked them to estimate how fast the car was going when it hit another car. Mm-hmm. And group two, she asked them to estimate the car 
uh, how fast the car was going when it smashed into the other car. And to those people in, and obviously the difference in the phraseology is just one word, so hit on one and smashed on the other. Yep. The group that heard the word smashed estimated that the speed that the car going was was much faster than the group that where she used the word hit. And interestingly, a week later, that the group that heard the word smash were twice as likely to say that there was glass on the floor yeah. Yeah, from the car wreckage. But actually in the video, there was no glass. Uh, and I find it fascinating because that basically says you can change people's memories, can't you? Yeah. So um, you had mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that, you know, you think of memory like it's a Word document. And so you just, you store the information in there and you can retrieve it later. That's a very common way of thinking about it, but it's that is not accurate at all. The memories that we have are very fluid and they're very easy to influence. And we can all have these memories changed. In fact, uh, some of the the recent research on memory suggests that every time we remember something, we erase that memory and it is then rewritten. So as we are telling something, as we were remembering it, it's destroyed. Like the chemical traces of that memory are destroyed and then it is rewritten. And that means that it is possible that every time we remember something, we're remembering it slightly differently and in line with whatever our interpretation is. So the reason that they remembered the broken glass is because that as they remembered the video for the first time, it kind of got a little bit more severe in line with this idea that there was a smash that happened. And then as they remembered it later, it got a little bit more severe. And as they remembered it later, it got a little bit more severe and to the point where they, they now actively remembered there being broken glass there, even though there wasn't any. And that is what they call misattribution, isn't it, as well? Our brains are very good at filling gaps. Yes. So I don't believe Elizabeth said this, but I'm making this leap. If I'm using the word smash, the likelihood is that there's glass there. So I'm going to say that there's glass there. Now, using that wonderful phrase, in my mind's eye. So in other words, I'm looking into my own mind. I can see that there was glass there. And I'm sure that if I was testifying or if I was saying about a customer experience, that was the case. But the, And that's the interesting bit, isn't it? Because effectively, what can happen is a customer can tell you about the experience they have had, but they are relying on their memory of that experience. Yes. And A, they may be exaggerating any particular way for whatever reason, but B, they could just be misremembering. Yeah, it could be absolutely sincere. Yeah, absolutely. And and moreover, absolutely think what they're saying is accurate, but it's not, yeah? And there's been some misattribution put in there. It could be that that before they complain to an organization that they tell other friends who, who say, well, they should have done this or this happened to me, and that could that could alter that memory. This leads us on to the so what, okay? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm conscious of, of people's time and I, and I do want to talk about this. And that is, what does this all mean? So when you start looking at this whole area of memory, I found it fascinating. And to be honest with you, I could carry on for another two or three shows talking about this, but we won't. 
So, you know, but I, I find this whole area is fascinating from how our memories form, the importance of memories to the way that memories are achieved, retrieved, etc. This whole area of misattribution, misinformation. And it makes me think that what we need to do is a few things. The danger is that what organizations are doing is they are reinforcing bad memories by getting customers to repeat the problem, aren't they, Ron? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, so if you've had a problem that gets escalated, then you invariably end up telling your story over and over again. And so you can think about, you know, this example from Elizabeth Loftus about the car window smashing and whether there's broken glass. If I am forced to articulate the same negative story over and over again, I'm naturally, not through any malicious purpose, I'm naturally going to focus on the narrative parts of that story, you know, what what made it an important or interesting or compelling story. And that is almost always going to lead to more extreme versions of what happened. And so even if you have somebody who is strictly scrupulous and trying to tell you the version of the story that is as accurate as they can make it, the science of memory tells us they're going to start remembering that in a more and more negative way over time because they have to keep remembering it. And so, yeah, are you building into your procedures a process that is likely to make customers' negative experiences more memorable, more intense, more negative over time? Or are you going to do what you can to minimize that negative experience and turn it into a good experience as quickly as you possibly can? And the reverse is true. Yes. That repetition of good experiences. I don't know, somebody going on a vacation and they had a good experience. Is anything you can do to reinforce the good experience that the customer had? or the, a good experience of a customer using your product or service, again, will go down into the memories. Building on what Ryan was just saying about if we take the word smash and hit, okay, well, what words, what language are you using that will deliver the experience that you're trying to deliver, okay? We do this thing called memory maker training which basically goes that once you've defined what the experience is that you're trying to deliver, making a customer feel valued or cared for, whatever it may be, then what are the words and the phrases and the body language that you should be using to deliver that? Because those are the things, hence it's called memory maker, to create the memory, okay? So what's the language that you're using? And the other area that I wanted to raise here, and again, we could talk about all this stuff for another half an hour, but we haven't got the time to do that today. So Ryan in show two talked about the fishing nets, okay? And this whole idea of uh, the structure of memories, okay? So here's the question for me, which is key going forward. What are the structures, typical structures of your customers' memories? And how are they built? And what are the inputs to those structures? So if you can imagine a fishing net, and as Ryan's taught us, you know, each of those individual knots are individual memories. How are those made up? They're, they're not just made up from, we've learned that they're made up, not just episodic memory, but implicit memory, blah, 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 all the things that we've been talking about on the show. Can you start to map that out? Okay. And, and here's my last point, which I think is really important. 
can you design an AI system to replicate that or to gather that information? Because I think that the biggest area, and this takes us sort of full circle to this whole area of customer science. And again, we'll put a link in the show notes to this. But customer science is the future variant of customer experience. And that's built upon understanding of behavioral science, understanding of data, understanding of AI. So on that whole area of AI, are you building the AI system with that in mind to effectively replicate customers' memories and the data part of customer science? Are you dragging in the data sources to be able to build that phishing net up? And I think those things are are really important. Anything else you want to add to those, Ryan? I will draw a parallel here for, for people. AI can seem like magic, right? It's just kind of this wand that we wave over things and, oh, AI can do this now. It is a really interesting parallel that we can draw between artificial intelligence and human memory. It turns out that, you know, a lot of AI systems are just about looking for similarities and for co-occurrences. Like, well, these these things seem to go together a lot. Well, they, they're probably related. That's the way our memories form for a large extent for a lot of things. Our memories are formed, our long-term memories are formed. This, this network structure is formed by just things co-occurring in nature. And so, yeah, the parallel you draw between artificial intelligence systems and memory structures, there may be opportunities there for us to get a better idea of what ideas are associated in the minds of our consumers. If we've got an AI system that can track how often ideas co-occur or experiences co-occur in our systems. I hope these three sessions that we've run on memory have been useful to you. If you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to them. Memory, I think, is is so important from a customer experience perspective. And let me just repeat what Daniel Kahneman has talked about, which sort of set me off thinking about all this stuff some 10 years ago, which is we don't choose between experiences. We choose between the memory of an experience. So understanding how memories are formed is absolutely key to designing an experience. And we we hope that this little mini series on memories has been good. Any feedback you want to give us will be gratefully received. Drop us a line at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Or if you get a chance, it would be really good if you could um, just do a review for us on whichever platform you're listening from. A review would really help Ryan and I in um, moving the podcast forward. So thanks very much, everybody. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.